You're listening to the Design Engineering Podcast, where we explore topics important to Canada's mechanical engineers, product designers, and machine builders. I'm Mike McLeod, editor of Design Engineering Magazine. I interview Mike Curry, Director General, Ontario, for the National Research Council's Industrial Research Assistance Program, better known as IRAP. Canada's leading innovation assistance program for small and medium-sized businesses. During our conversation, Mike explains how the IRAP program works, details how the program assists companies beyond just funding, and gives practical advice on how to get a project accepted. But before we jump in, a few words from this episode's sponsor, IGUS. IGUS engineers and manufactures self-lubricating, maintenance-free plastic components for moving applications in nearly every industry. IGUS also offers flexible cables and durable plastic cable carriers guaranteed to last up to 36 months. Visit IGUS.ca to learn more. With that, let's get into the interview. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the Design Engineering Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. So just before we begin, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Mike Curry. I'm the Director General for the National Research Council Industrial Research Assistance Program, more commonly known as NRC IRAP. I'm actually a mechanical engineer, a mechanical technologist, and uh, I've worked in industry for 15 years before I joined the government. Um, I've been with uh, IRAP as a program for 13 years, was a field industrial technology advisor, uh, director in our uh, Markham region, and now I'm responsible for IRAP Ontario. So my background is uh, in die casting. I started out in magnesium and aluminum die casting, worked in zinc die casting, uh, injection molding, uh, vacuum forming, light assembly, mostly automotive, but I've made uh, bomb parts through to, through to consumer uh, products, you name it, really. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's great. Can you now? I think a lot of people have heard of the IRAP program, um, but could you could you kind of give a synopsis of what what it does, what it what its function is? Yeah. So I guess in brief, uh, we were founded in 1946, so we're coming up on our 75th anniversary. And so initially, we were the technical advisory service after World War II to help companies with advice on how to get back into regular production manufacturing. Uh, appliances instead of tanks <laughs> and things like that. And so um, our program has evolved a bit over time, but our main focus is advisory services to industry. So we have 270 approximately uh, industrial technology advisors across the country that are meant to uh, meet companies at their location and uh, close to them, get to know them, try to understand what their needs are, and provide advice. So that advice could be everything from connecting with other government departments, uh, colleges and universities, wherever resources are gonna be of use to them. And then sure. to also take the experience that our staff have from their private sector experience in industry uh, to provide advice to companies. So in my case, uh, you know, I would help a company understand process issues perhaps with uh, injection molding, vacuum forming, uh, what it's like to work in the automotive sector if that's new to them, uh, that that type of thing, and that's what our staff is is uh, in line with. And I know everybody knows the funding part of it, or people who are familiar with the program are are. But there's also an advisory, like you said, there's an advisory and a and a connections part of it 
basically uh, each technology advisor has their own strength of background. So we have photonics physicists that have developed LCD screens in their private sector time. Uh, we have people that were patent agents that understand uh, intellectual property. Uh, we have people that were in life science, developing pharmaceuticals and uh, you name it, software, uh, hardware, semiconductors, it's kind of across the board. Um, so the network of our own staff directly is there, but then we're also connected obviously to the National Research Council where there's another uh, several thousand uh, researchers doing everything from aerospace manufacturing, uh, digital technologies, uh, automotive, types of research and so we can draw on them but then in our network uh, we were connected with academia uh, other government departments like you know, NRCAN and uh, FedDev in Ontario and so on we bring what we can to the company to suit its needs whether it's on the business side or technical side to help them resolve whatever problem they may have so when companies come and apply or at least they take that first step towards being a part of the program, they get matched up with the correct series of ITAs or an ITA who may have a strength in their area and then yeah, they have access to the much broader network as well. Yeah, so essentially there's, there's different ways that uh, companies come to IRAB. So we have a 1-800 number, which I can give you later if you like. I have sure. a website as well uh, that we can share. So some companies in a larger urban center like Toronto, uh, they tend to find us through those means. They tend to find us through uh, referrals from others that have accessed the program. Uh, we work a lot with different organizations in a region. Um, so we get referrals that way. Um, we also, you know, uh, run into people at trade shows uh, and in other means. And so, um, what happens typically is we ask companies to access us through our 1-800 number. They go through a, a bit of a screening criteria for our eligibility to understand them, to understand if they're ready for uh, our services and eligible. Uh, and then depending on what stage they're at, we put them through different levels of discussion. And so ultimately, uh, the goal for a company is to end up with an industrial technology advisor uh, in their area who can come and visit them, develop a relationship with the company, understand as much about that company as they can. It's really about a trusted relationship. So your ITA, an industrial technology advisor, is your new friend who will uh, try to understand your business. And then it's not really an application process as much mm. as it is. Uh, that person will then work with you to work through our proposal uh, steps, which it's it's an online proposal system, which then uh, puts them forward for a contribution agreement if if the funding is determined to be the best course of action. So it's not like filling out tax forms or uh, no. <laughs> I you know one imagines you know having to write long kinds of uh, grant applications or or you know what I mean complicated documentation stuff. It sounds more uh, user friendly with somebody to sort of guide you through the process. Well, we like to believe it is. So uh, over time, we've evolved to where our proposal is really meant to answer a set of questions. And most companies, you know, if you're, say, 30 employees and you're established and you've got products already, most companies already have a business plan. They can answer most of the questions that we're going to ask fairly directly. Um, so it's, you know, 
what are your financial uh, statements like? You know, what's your financial capacity? Uh, these types of things. And then what do you want to do as a technical project? So are you developing a new product that will help you grow? Will it make you pivot into a new industry? Something like that. And so um, we can talk however you like about how that funding works. Um, but essentially, yes, we, we walk you through a process. It's not intended to be any more bureaucratic than it needs to be, but there is a set of due diligence that we go through. Here. Sure, sure. And what are the what are the criteria? I know one of them is that you have to be a Canadian company under 500 employees, is it? Yeah, so the, the, the government has decided that we fit in the 500 employee or less category. So essentially 500 employees in Canada or less, you have to be an incorporated entity operating in Canada. And then ideally, um, because of the way our funding model works, you need to have employees. So if a company comes to us and it's, it's one person, typically the, they're, not, they're not really ready for us yet. We, we're looking for a company that has T4 employees um, on the small side. You know, the, they might be fairly new, but they have to have some financial capacity already. So either revenue or in private investment that type of thing so that they can cover parts of their costs that we don't. And our funding is in arrears. So they have to be able to spend the money to get the money reimbursed from us. We're really about cash flow as a program. I see. So it comes at the end instead of at the beginning. Well, monthly. So monthly. So, okay. So what we do is we set up a contribution agreement. So um, the research and development might be a one year project. We agree to support your labor costs, uh, $100,000, say, for that one year. And every month, you, your staff, your contractors do the work, and then you file a claim with us, and we reimburse you monthly. Up to a certain percentage? It's, so it's up to 80% for a T4 internal employee to the company. And then if you, uh, say, for example... You're a little company, you've got an engineer or two, you're doing design things, but you don't have somebody who specializes in finite element analysis. Mm. You need to hire a contractor in to help you with that. We'd, we'd like you to hire somebody, obviously, uh, and make them a T4 employee, but sometimes you can't. So you bring in a contractor, uh, we can reimburse their costs up to 50% of their labor towards doing that FEA type work for you. So. That that's an example. That's great. Are there different tiers to the? If I if I remember correctly, there like it seemed like there were different tiers, like a small tech innovation project or a midsize innovation project or youth employment. Are those different programs within the program or? Well, so we really have uh, the IRAP program, which is our R and D. Depending on how you view R and D, there's little R, hmm. little D. <laughs> right. Um, it's really yeah. about developing something that helps you as a company, okay? And so that's one stream of funding. Now, within that, we do have small projects that you may have heard termed as accelerated review process. And those are typically $50,000 and less. Um, they could help you with understanding your patent strategy, understanding uh, a prototype and a feasibility study, uh, sales and marketing side to try and determine how you would better commercialize your product. And then we have staged projects and they're really only staged by the bigger the dollar figure, the more involved due diligence we have to do because it's taxpayers' money. So we want to be responsible. So 
50,000 to 10 million dollars technically um, but we have a limited budget for funding over 1 million so um, those are usually for larger companies that have a very broad project that they're working on um, typically our project size is you know $200,000 in that range and we're trying to help a company then do uh, do whatever development it is um, the, the difference is, is really the due diligence, the amount of questions we have to ask for the size of funding to make sure that we're covering all the bases, mitigating risk, helping to understand what you're doing, seeing how we can help you. Right. The process is very much the same for all of them. It just gets more detailed, the bigger the funding. And then we do have a youth employment program as well that can help, you know, hire a, a youth uh, up to $30,000 typically. Uh, to support a youth hire for six months to a year. And that youth would be a recent graduate from college or university that's going to bring something new to your business. Thinking from the design engineering point of view, uh, so somebody who would have exposure to new kinds of technology that maybe everybody on staff hasn't had, maybe they're good at 3D printing, maybe they're good at FEA analysis or something something newfangled that uh, would be handy to have in-house and hopefully they'll become a, a regular employee down the road. Exactly. And, and most of the time, that's what happens. They, they bring the person on, their skill sets are uh, new to the company. So like you say, FEA, uh, you know, something new with CAD or CAM or something like that. Gotcha. And, uh, and they usually stay on, not always, but that's the intent is it's a, yeah. it's an internship that's funded with, you know, government support. Right. It sounds a little bit like Shark Tank, except you don't have to sell part of the company. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the Dragon's Den or the Shark Tank, or I, I th- that's that's sort of the image that comes to mind. I know, I know it's quite different, but still, it's. I imagine half the the benefit is just telling people maybe even no, but here's why, and here's what you need in order to get to yes. Sort of being that outside evaluator of whatever it is they're trying to do, and say, yeah, I don't think you're quite there yet, but if you were to maybe build it out a little bit more or it's that consulting role almost it, it is really and and that's where a lot of our team you know they've been consultants they've uh, done different things in industry and they're trying to bring that experience to a role where we're just here to help and so they're paid by the government and essentially they're there to provide advice and so um, for most companies it's really access to somebody that can give them a second set of eyes on a, on a situation, help them determine where their competitive, um, where the competitive market is, uh, understand what their next steps are. And so as part of our eligibility, we ask a company to provide us with their business plan or their pitch deck that they might use at a dragon's den type scenario. Um, sure. And we have folks on the team that are very good at helping companies understand how to improve their pitch deck so that when they do go to look for investment, uh, you know, they're better suited to get that investment. And then, you know, we look at financials, as I said before, we look at the employees they have to make sure that they have the resources necessary to support the project. And so that's really what we're about. So rather than being, uh, you know, a bit, we'll say adversarial in terms of, uh, you know, providing funding, yeah. we're really here to try and, and encourage and help where we can. And sometimes we can't because companies aren't at a stage where, you know, they're ready for our support, but that's where we try to steer them to something that will get them there if we can. 
is this related to or is it substantially different than the SR and ED? Uh, they're complementary, really. Are they? Yeah. So essentially, as an example, if you have a $100,000 R&D project from a labor standpoint um, and you're receiving, say, 80% of that labor cost from us, the remaining 20% is then eligible for shred. And so essentially you can you can get a certain amount of funding from us, a certain amount of funding from shred and then shred supports materials and capital and things. I, I believe they do still. I, I'm, I'm maybe not current on all of the shred terms anymore, but they're complementary. So you can really actually find funding from us to support your labor costs and then shred to support the other parts of your R&D activity. Can you coordinate both through the same ITA or is that a different department that you would then meet with somebody? I, I know you're not necessarily up on the shred part, but I'm just kind of curious Is it if you yeah, happen to know. They're not coordinated exactly, but what we try to do is for those that are in uh, listening to you on that, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, when they've been through Shred, they have to provide a certain set of documentation for Shred. And so that happens at their tax filing. So by that point, they've usually done all the work. Yeah. In our case, we're working with them while they're doing the work. And so what we try to do is have have them create the documentation, the timesheets and the payroll requirements and things that they would need for us, but that are then applicable to shred when they get there. So it should make it easier for them to do their shred tax filing. You worked as an ITA for many years. Are there common mistakes that people make when they when they venture into to this kind of thing? Yeah, the mistakes, I, I would say the biggest thing that we have is, is companies that are they're not really in a position to actually execute on a project or execute on advisory work. So they're, they're too early stage. And so they, they don't have any financial backing. They have a, an idea and it could be a good idea, but it's not tested in any way. Um, and so they're too early stage, but otherwise there aren't really too many mistakes other than to assume that it's all about the money. Um, because we're not just about the money. We're very much about the advisory and, and helping a company understand. So we've actually had circumstances where a company comes to us, they're really interested in money from us. And by the time we give them some advisory discussion and, and go through a bit of an exercise, they realize they don't need to invest as much or they don't need to go down that same path or, you know, something like that, or there's a better path for them to go down. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That's the thing that I think for me as an ITA and for, for our team, that's the most rewarding part is helping a company actually uh, see the things they maybe don't see. And we're, we're in government. We don't see everything either, but we do see and have resources to help them find uh, information that they wouldn't have otherwise. Are there other misconceptions that people have about the the program? Uh, <laughs> that's a that's an interesting question. So, I mean, we are we are government, so there are requirements. We have to understand your financial capacity. We have to respect the taxpayer. Um, we are a non-repayable contribution, so we're not a grant and we're not a loan. Um, Non-repayable means that in general, if you follow the terms and conditions of our contribution agreement, which means that you're uh, staying in Canada for five years uh, after our funding, you're reporting back to us annually about your growth, uh, and so you stay in communications with us, 
um, non-repayable means that things just continue. You, you don't have to repay the money that we give you. But uh, we do have circumstances where companies sell themselves to foreign entities, and then we talk about repayment. And so there is a bit of a misconception there. We're, we're definitely not alone. We have no lien rights to, a, to funding. However, we do uh, expect that if a company receives money from the government, receives money from us, and then they take that IP and leave the country with it, mm. that they might have to repay that money. It seems only fair to the taxpayer in that sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, I hadn't quite thought of that, but I guess part of it is there's bound to be that element that wants to try and work the system and and see if they can't, I don't know, you know what I mean? Like there has to be those safeguards in place so that somebody isn't just taking advantage. Well, and ultimately it's, um, you know, we're trying to help companies grow in Canada. And so our metrics are really, does a company grow in revenue? Does it grow in uh, full-time employees? Effectively, the benefits to Canada, are they paying more taxes? Are they supporting more employment here? And so there are circumstances where it's the right thing for a company to, to develop a technology and then, you know, sell it to a Google or sell it to a larger player. It happens. It's good business. Um, and so to some degree, that's a benefit to Canada, but also it depends on what the long-term, uh, you know, end game is. If, if it's all leaving Canada and all the jobs are leaving, we would expect that there's a repayment along the way. Of course. That seems to be a growing kind of circumstance. It seems like patenting uh, the complications, how most tech, new technologies are a conglomeration of different kinds of, like there's an electronics part and there's a, I mean, to build an iPhone or to build even something industrial takes a lot of different IP coming from different places such that the end product is never something that was wholly built in-house. The majority of our clients, the companies we work with, they, they, they plan to stay in Canada. They do stay in Canada. Um, it's very seldom is it an issue, but there are those circumstances where the technology is just so good and so opportune to go somewhere else um, because, you know, General Motors, Ford, some of the big companies, they like Canadian technology. And so it really then comes down to, you know, what happens and what's right for the business. And as I say, sometimes it is right for the business to, to sell, to do something different with their IP. Um, and that's just where we try to discuss it with them and work it out. That's really how it goes and, and make sure that the benefits stay in Canada. And so there are examples, I, I can't give you specifics, but there are examples of companies that you know, everything remains in Canada, but now the company is owned by a multinational and it's still a benefit, right? Yeah. Um, we just have to weigh out whether the benefits that were expected out of the funding that was provided are going to remain or not. For the most part, uh, incorporated entity stays here. It just happens to have a different ownership structure and, and we just take it a case by case. Yeah. I remember years ago when uh, McDonald Detweiler and Associates, uh, I think, they wanted to be bought by like a, an arms manufacturer or something like that in the States because they needed better access to the uh, government contracts. And there was hue and cry to try and block them from, from going because they owned so much IP that had been in some way funded by 
Canadian government to build uh, satellites and and uh, space robotics, obviously, and and then they, I mean, they're back now, but uh, that that's that's always that's always a, a juggling act, isn't it? Uh, you want them to stay, you want them to be here, but at the same time, there's a, a grow or sell kind of locus that that happens for a lot of companies where they have to make that decision as to how best to grow. And sometimes that's selling to a much larger company that can that has the resources to do a rapid development that that would take decades maybe for a company on its own. Very much so, yeah. Is IRAP unique to to Canada, is there something unique about the IROP program here? Or are there other G7s that have something analogous to it? Or is it something that we sort of came up with and, and have been running with for decades now? Well, so IROP, as I said, it's evolved over time. And so it was originally founded as an advisory service only. And now we've added, you know, funding and more advisory resources. And, you know, because, as I say, we're attached to the National Research Council as well, we have all of that that we play into. So, you know, Israel, Germany, Finland, there are other countries that have things that are similar. There are country, countries that have, you know, picked up some of what IRAP does and try to follow the same model, and we try to learn from them as well. Uh, so it's, it's unique, though, in that uh, in government for Canada and that our people are very technical. So um, they bring a lot to technical uh, companies. They also uh, help other government agencies in different cases with that technical piece rather than just a business focus. So um, where we're unique in Canada is that as a government agency, all of our people are industry people. You know, in my case, it was 15 years before I joined government. I worked in industry. Um, everybody in the organizations like that, many with 20, 30 years experience, and then they've come uh, later in their career to bring their knowledge to to help. So that's, I think, where we're a bit unique globally. Mm-hmm. I think that surprised me when I when I started researching it is that uh, is just how how technical and how sort of in the field every everyone was. I I expected, I guess, more of a you know somebody who's um, acting as a bit of a gatekeeper and may have known of others who might be able to help them, but to be acting as consultants themselves. Is there a concern about the IP protection or the, you know, I mean, a lot of companies are very protective of what they have going because they don't want anybody else to know. Is that, is that something that, that scares people off or, or they are concerned about? Oh, it's definitely a concern for companies and um, different companies approach that risk differently, but we're, um, we're all government employees. We're sworn to a level of confidentiality. We have our codes of conduct and conflict of interest and, so our focus is very much about protecting that confidentiality. So when we work with a company, uh, we go out of our way to make sure that we're trying to keep things, you know, between us. And and that's the trusted relationship that I referred to earlier. It's very much about uh, trying to uh, understand each other so we can help, you know. And in our case, uh, we're helping a company, and the benefit back to us is that company growing. Um, on behalf of the taxpayer again. So essentially, the companies do have that as a concern. So what we, we have policies in place that we share with them. Um, we also uh, have a proactive disclosure process with because we are government. So the only thing we do share publicly is if a company receives funding from us, 
uh, we provide the name of the company and how much funding they receive, but we don't explain anything beyond that. And there really is an access outside of NRC and, and the IRAP in particular to any of the intellectual property or discussions that we have with the company. Sort of paramount rule is, uh, you know, it's between us. Right. Is this something that people, is there like a waiting line of people to get in? Do you, do you wish or do you wish there were more companies that would take advantage of it? Well, in essence, across the country, we, we don't advertise. Um, we're, we're an agency in the government. So um, by word of mouth, though, I mean, we serve a fair number of companies. So we do go out and look. But for the most part, companies are coming to us. Uh, in a way that we usually have no issue with, you know, delivering our funding, uh, having our hitting our targets for advisory services. And I mean, um, I can actually send you a data sheet with some information, but just rough numbers. You know, last year we served 14,000 companies nationally wow. uh, with advisory services. Um, and so there were about 9,500 companies received 14,000 advisory services. And then you know, there's X number we funded, X number of jobs we helped create and support and those sure. types of things. So this type of avenue with design engineering is, is usually how we're, we're heard about. So this is really good. Yeah. Is there a time frame? Is it from fiscal, uh, fiscal year beginning to end that the, the process works or is it multi-year? Yeah, so historically, depending on how much money the program has had, um, we operate on a government fiscal year, which is April 1st to March 31st. And so typically our new funding cycle starts April 1st and we work through our funding until it's gone. And so the government has been good to us and, and given us funding that typically we have funding throughout the year. And so we're, we're trying to fund projects throughout the year and they do carry over to multiple years and and so there was a time when we would run out of funding in, you know, July, August, um, but that's, it's not really that way anymore. Mm. Um, so there is some history that you'll hear if you do research online about things like that, but we, we have funding year round and uh, yeah. Uh, so there isn't so much that we do uh, try to respect our window of March and April when the government fiscal year ends. So we, that's a bit of a time when we're we're managing our projects from the prior year um, and we start developing projects typically you know february uh, march to get ourselves into the next fiscal year as well so it is ongoing uh, it's a bit hard to explain the, the government fiscal year and how funding the funding model works but suffice it to say we have funding throughout the year and it's, it's generally not an issue so is it better better for companies to start putting their ducks in line at the beginning of the year to sort of hit that April 1st? Should they be applying? Like, is there, is there an optimal window for people to, to make their, uh, their approaches? Uh, really, it's to find your ITA and develop a relationship as, as, uh, as they can and, and then take it from there. I think that's the best way to approach it. Um, there was, as I say, a history of April 1st, you know, you needed to plan for that, but we're not really there anymore. It's more, you know, find your ITA, develop the relationship, trust them to work with you to, to where the funding is. And if it happens that funding is, is difficult at the end of the fiscal year, then they'll prepare you for April 1st to the next fiscal year. 
um, that's really the important part is that advisory relationship with the ITA. Gotcha. And going back to something you mentioned before, are there certain benchmarks or certain milestones that that people should be able to hit before they, so that they know they're in a position to to really hit the ground running? Yeah. So really, it's it's a bit on our website. It's, they should have a business plan. They should have an understanding of what it is that they want to do, uh, what their strategy is for growth, because we're trying to help companies grow. Um, what their financial statements are so that they can demonstrate what their financial capacity is to us as they go. Um, and then really it's an understanding of their business and the people that are in it to execute whatever technical project there might be. So if it's a prototype development, they're developing a new product, they're trying to uh, advance a process that they have and make it better. Uh, those are the types of things we want you to you know, talk to us about so that we understand, you know, where our funding is the best fit. And then also where other sources of funding in government and other resources are available. So it's really just tell us what you can about your business. And if you've got a business plan, that's usually the, the best start. I know you can't say much now that I think about it, but are there particular success stories that, that come to mind? Um, there are, and I wish I could give you okay. some pointed ones, but I, what I think I can do is I can find you our website link to actually steer you to success stories that are, you know, they've, everybody's in agreement that they're there. Okay. okay. Um, sure. but, but I mean, in, in a nutshell, from my experience as an ITA, uh, I've worked with companies on software development to develop some, you know, an ERP type system or even a CAD CAM type system that will work with broader uh, equipment. Um, we work with companies that are developing uh, new autonomous vehicle algorithms. And, uh, but then on the, on the material side, we've worked with companies that are trying to improve their processes for injection molding and, and uh, vacuum forming, which happens to be my, some of my history um, and try to be more efficient or actually develop a process that's different from what's out there so that they're building machinery uh, to do something different. We've worked with life science companies that are doing medical diagnostic systems, uh, you know, MRI type, type things, but then also visualization technology for a doctor. So a doctor can, you know, find tumors and uh, actually see things in three dimensions like you would in, you know, in CAD. So, so now the technology is there where you can actually have a doctor see a human heart like they would in SolidWorks, something like that. So there's lots of really good examples. Um, but as I say, it's probably best if I point you to something that's better written than I can describe here. Sure. And I can include that in the show notes. Is there anything else that you think is important uh, about the entire process that you've guided companies before or, or anything else that they should be thinking about or, or taking into consideration? As I say, I think it's really about them being open with us and we'll be open with them. Uh, we'll try to provide advice. You tell us what it is your needs are. Um, there are companies that are at a, at a stage, their early stage where they're not uh, really capable of doing all the things that we need them to do. So I guess be willing to listen to that side of it, if we give you advice and say, you know, go away, do a little bit of homework, sure. come back and see us in a year. Um, it, it's really about taking it in that light. You know, entrepreneurs are very keen people. 
they're, they're really into their idea. And sometimes their ideas are awesome, um, but they don't have more than the idea. And so what we may do is we may say to you, look, you're not at a stage that's ready. Um, it's not no forever, but it's no for right now. And so uh, really the point is, is that we're trying to provide advice to make you ready for us in the future. And for those companies that are larger, yes, we're government. We don't take as much time as you might think to develop projects. We're not as bureaucratic as we could be. Um, we're really trying to meet your needs. So, you know, give us that chance to discuss through what it is that we want to do with you, you know, before you assume that we're bureaucratic and we're, we're you know, asking too much of you because the process is really quite straightforward. Everybody has their own experience, right? So some will take it differently than others. And, and we're good with that. We've worked with a lot of companies over time. And we understand where we could be better. And we always want to learn how to be better too. So. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate you spending the time with us. And uh, thank you for being on the podcast. No problem. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the Design Engineering Podcast's other episodes at www.design-engineering.com slash podcasts, or subscribe to the podcast via the major streaming services, including Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And finally, this episode was brought to you by IGUS, a manufacturer of self-lubricating plastic components. IGUS uses tripologically optimized polymer blends to design its bearing materials. These blends consist of base materials for wear resistance, reinforcing fibers for high forces, and embedded solid lubricants for dry running operation. Visit igus.ca to browse through products or to contact an expert.